Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium. A term that describes overpowering frights. Derived from the name of which Greek god? So let me repeat that. A term that describes overpowering fright derives from the name of a Greek god. Which god is that? And the U.S. president handed out electric toothbrushes to people, explaining that I give these toothbrushes to friends, for then I know that from now until the end of their days, they will think of me the first thing in the morning and the last at night. Which U.S. president did that? So those are the two questions that we'll be starting off with here today on the Dr. Joe Show, uh, 514-790-0800, or you can text your questions and comments to 514-800. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, and uh, our mandate of nonsense, which is so rampant uh, out there, to demystify science and make sure that we keep you out of the clutches of the charlatans. And uh, I have a very special invitation for you. Thrilled about this one, and I'm really looking forward to it. It is an event that uh, is going to take place on Tuesday night at uh, 6.30 here at McGill. And it's part of McGill Space Week. We will have five astronauts talking to a live audience who will also have a chance to ask questions. And we'll we'll have uh, Julie Payette, uh, Bob Thursk, uh, David uh, Saint-Jacques, Dave Williams, and Mark Garneau, all Canadian astronauts. And uh, these are really, you know, elites of society. I mean, if any of you have looked into what it takes to become an astronaut, you'll know how impressive these people are. And how often do you get a chance to have five of them in one room at the same time discussing their escapades in space and uh, willing to answer questions from the public? It will uh, cost you 10 bucks to attend, but uh, let me tell you, it is going to be a great investment. You'll be informed and entertained by one of those most famous people. If you want more information and to register, because you do have to pre-register, it's very easy. Just go on Google and put in McGill Space Week, McGill Space Week, and it will come right up. And uh, you can register, and uh, I'll be hosting the event on, on Tuesday night which is uh, a thrill for me because I've long been uh, a fan of the space program. I followed it, heard about Sputnik in 1957. And uh, obviously there's a tremendous amount of science involved in in this uh, program. So check it out, McGill Space Week, and uh, uh, I think you'll have a great time. Let me remind you of something else again. 
next week on Saturday here at McGill, we will have uh, 24 des Sciences, 24 hours of, of, of science. And uh, there'll be lots of demonstrations uh, here in, in chemistry. So you can drop in. It goes on uh, pretty well all day next uh, Saturday. And uh, there's no admission, uh, no cost for that one. And uh, some of our graduate students will be treating you to a variety of, uh, of demonstrations. So that's on next Saturday right here at the Automass Chemistry Building at, uh, at McGill. Let me just repeat the questions that I asked. A term that describes overpowering fright derives from the name, which God is that? And then I'm also looking for the name of the U.S. president who handed out electric toothbrushes. And he said that I give these toothbrushes to friends, for then I know that from now until the end of their days, they will think of me the first thing in the morning and the last one at night. 514-790-0800 is our phone number, and you can also text your questions, uh, comments, etc. Uh, to 514-800. Okay. Let me today by telling you a little story about uh, Thomas Edison, who uh, was uh, probably the, the greatest uh, inventor the world has seen. And he was a very, very interesting uh, personality. Well, on September 2nd, 1882, Edison pulled a handle at the Pearl Street power station. This, of course, was in New York. And 400 light bulbs lit up 85 houses, shops, and offices in the Wall Street district. And that really was the beginning of the age of electricity. Einstein built a whole electrical distribution system from generator to distribution wires to switches and light bulbs. The Pearl Street station burned coal in order to boil water. The steam produced turned large dynamos, which generated electricity. Edison was convinced that electricity could eventually be delivered to every home. And he also wanted to break the monopoly of the gas companies who were supplying gas for home lighting. Edison was a businessman. He reportedly often said that if an invention could not be sold, he was not interested in it. But electricity could be sold. How would one charge for it, though? How could you monitor its use? Edison's ingenuity again came to the fore. He was very much aware of the process of electrolysis, whereby the passage of electricity through a solution could cause substances from solution to plate out on an electrode. So he designed an electric meter, which consisted of two copper plates dipped into a solution of copper sulfate. Edison's direct current passed through the solution, meaning that one of the copper plates served as the positive electrode and the other as the negative. This meant that positive copper ions from solution were attracted to the negative electrode and they played it out. At the same time, copper from the positive electrode dissolved in the solution. The net result was a change in the weight of the plates in proportion to the amount of electricity that passed through the solution. Meter readers would then periodically come, switch off the power, remove the copper plates, replace them with new ones. The used plates would be taken away and weighed. On the basis of the change in weight, the customer would be charged for the electricity used. The electric meters were often located in unheated basements, and there was a chance that the solution would freeze. 
Edison solved the problem neatly. He incorporated a light bulb into the meter, which would produce enough heat to warm up the solution. The bulbs, of course, were to be bought from Edison's company. Edison, as I said, was a very clever uh, businessman. Today, of course, uh, we don't rely on these kind of uh, uh, primitive electrical meters. I mean, today we can look at this and, and you know, uh, call them primitive. But uh, back in, in those days, in the late 1800s, this was pure genius from, from uh, Edison. Uh, today's electric meters, though, uh, have caused some controversy because there uh, are some people who are concerned about electromagnetic radiation emanating from these meters. Uh, I don't think that there is much to that. This has been thoroughly researched. The radiation that uh, comes from those uh, meters is uh, not uh, ionizing radiation. So it's not the kind of radiation that we uh, worry about. So um, uh, Thomas Edison uh, was, as I said, an absolutely fascinating man. And his invention factory, as uh, as it was called in uh, Orange, New Jersey, can still be visited. And uh, I had the chance to go there a few years ago, and it's very impressive. Uh, it, of course, today is it is essentially a museum, but much of it has been cast during Edison's time. So you can venture through his uh, chemistry labs and the and the chemicals that he used are still out there on the on the shelves. You can see uh, uh, much of the equipment. And you can also visit his home, which was nearby, which wo- which is uh, a large house. And I guess in those days, it, it uh, would have really been uh, palatial uh, because Edison, of course, did make a, a great deal of money. Uh, he wasn't much interested. Uh, he was uh, a workaholic. He often slept in the uh, in the lab in the so-called invention uh, uh, factory, uh, very often with uh, his clothes on, and uh, apparently his uh, staff was not too enamored uh, of that because um, uh, they complained that uh, he did not have the uh, greatest scent, as one might expect from sleeping in your clothes uh, all the time in the lab. And behind his uh, back, uh, they had a little name for Edison. And that was, don't think that uh, the great inventor would have uh, appreciated that. Okay, well, I'm waiting for the answers. And I think we may have uh, one, but uh, we've got to take a break. We'll check out traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hey, so I learned something from our news uh, broadcast here. I, I just heard that Engelbert Humperdinck is coming to Montreal. And uh, I've always liked him. Uh, I like uh, his type of, of, of crooning. And, of course, Priest uh, Release Me, his uh, 1967 song. I mean, that was just uh, just great. And uh, he's, uh, I think he has to be in his middle 80s now. So it would be interesting to, to see him. 
anyway, that this brings to mind a little trivia question. Let me pose that for you guys. Where was Engelbert Humperdinck born? So where was he born? And uh, if you know that, maybe you, you will also know what his real name is. Obviously, it's not uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. All right. Uh, I think we have Nick on the line with maybe an answer to one of my questions. Nick? Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Would it be uh, God of Phobos? No. What word were you thinking of? No, no. It's a a God who, who plays a certain kind of flute in the pictures that you see. Okay, sorry and about in that. In fact, the flute he, the flute he plays, is also named after him. Okay, thank you. All right, we'll see if someone else has the answer to that. So, the the word that we're looking for is kind of synonymous with overpowering fright, and that word derives from the name of a Greek god. The question is, which Greek god? Now, I did have an answer texted into my question about the electric toothbrushes, and that was LBJ. Uh, president Johnson was the gift-givingest president in the history of the U.S. The uh, desk in the Oval Office was always full of giveaway things, which were sometimes little trinkets, like cufflinks, but sometimes uh, Rolex uh, watches and and, uh, expensive items that he would give away. All of them, of course, marked with his initials, sometimes with his his signature. If you want to learn more about him, if you ever get a chance to visit the uh, Johnson Presidential Library in Austin, Texas, it is really an amazing place. And you'll learn a great deal about this uh, this president. I mean, you know, he he was in in some ways kind of crass. He would hold me while the others were not in the toilet. But, you know, he was in there. And uh, but uh, Johnson did a great deal, much more than uh, Kennedy ever did. All right, so uh, we have the answer to uh, that question, but I'm still looking for the question about the Greek god. And uh, since I got the answer for the electric toothbrushes, let me pose another question. Uh, Let's stick with another presidential question. Abraham Lincoln's mother is said to have died of milk sickness. What was that? What was the milk sickness from which Abraham Lincoln's mother uh, died? Give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and uh, 514-800. Okay. Let me uh, talk a little bit about carnations. Why? Because it's kind of springtime and it's time to talk, have a little flowery talk. In uh, 1998, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded for research into the biological properties of nitric oxide. The Nobel Assembly stated that signal transmission by a gas represents an entirely new principle in signaling in biological systems, and that this was the first discovery that a gas can act as a a signal molecule in an organism. Well, actually, you know, that was not really correct. Ethylene was actually identified as a signal molecule in the 1930s, and that was as a result of what came to be called the carnation tragedy. A flower merchant with a greenhouse full of carnations got worried when the weather forecast called for extremely cold temperatures. 
So he placed a kerosene burner in the greenhouse and confidently went to bed. When he woke up in the morning, he was devastated. The carnations had all withered and they were unusable. This caused him to seek scientific advice, but nobody seems to know what had happened until the gases produced when the kerosene burner uh, were analyzed. And in, uh, I mean, in the 1930s, they already had ways of analyzing gases. One of these gases produced was ethylene, which turned out to be a plant hormone. This was a chemical produced by plants that stimulates the breakdown of chlorophyll, the synthesis of pigments like lycopene, the buildup of sugars and acids, and the softening of plant tissues by the enzymes. When this was discovered, the solution to another mystery became apparent. When first harvested, lemons are often too green to be acceptable in the marketplace. In order to hasten the development of a uniform yellow color, lemon growers used to store newly harvested lemons in sheds kept warm with kerosene stoves. The heat was believed to hasten the ripening. But when one grower tried a more modern heating system, he found that his lemons no longer turned yellow on time. With the discovery of ethylene, this now made sense. The ripening process was triggered by heat, not by heat, but by the small amount of ethylene gas given off by the burning kerosene. Today, some fruits and vegetables are picked when they're still green and they're gassed to ripen them. Bananas are the classic example. Since the carnation tragedy of the 30s, a great deal has been learned about keeping carnations fresh. They're kept away from any other ethylene-producing plants and are also treated with a kill bacteria which can attack the stem and block the channels that deliver water. Commercial preservative solutions contain about 3% sugar, which serves as food, but 200 parts per million of H-hydroxyquinoline citrate and sulfur thiosulfate. A home solution can be made with half a tablespoon of sugar and one teaspoon of bleach in half a liter of water. That will serve well for carnations and roses. But just be sure you keep your flowers away from any ripening other fruits because you don't want to experience an ethylene tragedy like the one that took place in the 1930s. It seems that all of those scientists on the Nobel Committee who awarded the prize for the identification of nitric oxide as the first signaling molecule in plants don't spend much time in greenhouses, or for that matter, in kitchens. So now you know the story behind uh, the carnation problem and uh, to do about it. We have Gail on the line. Hi, Gail. Gail? I think maybe Gail has uh, disappeared. Okay, so I'm still looking forward to the Can question. Oh, okay, there we go. Gail has reappeared. Yes? Hello, no, Gail? Connection? Yeah. Okay, I, I don't... We lost the connection, eh? All right, I, I I think we have to give up on Gail. So anyway, we're looking still for the term that describes uh, overpowering fright that derives from the name of a Greek god, and I'm looking for the name of that 
And Abraham Lincoln's mother is said to have died of something referred to as milk sickness. Question is, what was that? And uh, because we're uh, almost at break time, I'm going to give you another question that you can ponder. And maybe some of you will know the answer to this without actually Googling. What is the origin of the word sniper? So three questions. We're looking for sniper, looking for milk sickness, and looking for the name of the Greek god that gave us a turn with overpowering fright. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check out what's going on out there uh, in, with traffic, and we'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Welcome back. I think we have Joan on the line. Joan. It's pan, as in pan flute, and panic. That's it. Very good. I don't know why it took people so long to get uh, that one, but uh, you're, of course, correct. It is pan, and pan has the upper body of a man and the legs of? I don't know. Horse? No, a goat. A goat. And he also has horns. And, indeed, he is said to be rather horny. Okay. And there's a fam- there's a famous ancient statue that was discovered in Pompeii, which is really quite raunchy because it depicts uh, Pan uh, having uh, intimate relations with a, a goat. Anyway, Pan was the god of shepherds and flocks, and he, of course, played the Pan flute. But he liked his naps. And when he was, he would shout loudly, and that would create panic. So that's where our term panic comes from. It comes from Pan, the ancient Greek god. So thanks very much uh, for How that. about, uh, can I take a, a chance on Mrs. Lincoln and her yes, sure. milk thing? Is mm-hmm. it what you were writing the other day in the paper about adding borax to no. unpasteurized milk? No, it wasn't. No, oh, it well, wasn't. Uh, no. I, I enjoyed your <laughs> okay. story. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Okay. So we're still looking for Abraham Lincoln's mother's death from milk sickness, and the question is what uh, that was. Uh, Daniel? Yes, hello. Hi. Answer to my Abraham Lincoln question? Uh, no, the sniper question. Okay, go ahead, sniper. Um, was it military context or non-military? Doesn't really matter. I mean, it's a okay. Well, of... non-military. It refers to uh, back in the 18th century. They they used to to hunt a small bird called a snipe, which was a very exactly. fast bird and extremely hard to hit. And if you were able to, you were sniping. Therefore, they called you a sniper. Exactly. That's where it comes from. So it is indeed a bird. And uh, as you say correctly, it dates back to the uh, to the 18th uh, century, 
and an expert shooter who could, you know, hit a target, I guess a moving target, which the snipe would have been, was called a sniper. Very good. So I think we've got the answer to that question as, uh, as well. Okay, well, let me now tell you another story. It's a story about glass fiber. And as the term implies, of course, it refers to thin thread. And, uh, you know, I first became a, uh, <laughs> acquainted with this back in my graduate school days, which was a few years ago. And uh, sometimes in those days, we needed to make our own uh, equipment, glassware, and it required the bending of glass tubing. And you would do this by heating up a, a, a long glass tube that, that we purchased uh, in the flame of a Bunsen burner, and then you could bend it. But if instead of bending it, you heated it and then quickly pulled sideways with two hands, then the glass would uh, extend out to form a thread. And we used to play around with this to see who could produce the longest and the thinnest thread. And, you know, with a little practice, you get very good at this. And uh, you can make some pretty thin threads. But today, of course, uh, they use machines to do this. And the threads that are, are produced from glass, and, and this is done by, by uh, spraying the molten glass through uh, a spinneret, which are you know, tiny little holes. And uh, the, the glass threads can be very, very thin, thinner actually than a human hair. And when you mat these together, uh, the fibers can trap air. And that makes for an excellent insulating material. And that's what we use, you know, in, in attics, that, that pink stuff. And of course, we call it fiberglass because it's made of glass fibers. Uh, and in that case, the term fiberglass is actually accurate because it is made of nothing uh, but glass. However, there's confusion because sometimes the term fiberglass is also a composite material which is made by impregnating a network of glass fibers with a fluid resin that then cures to form a hard substance. Well, that technology was first worked out by Germans, German chemists in the 1930s. And they found that you could take a, a polyester resin and cure it by combining it with styrene and hydrogen peroxide. And there was a chemical reaction that then forges a link between the large molecules of polyester and sets up this, this rigid network. And that's what curing is all about. And during World War II, British intelligence agents successfully stole this secret from the Germans. And they turned it over to the American uh, company Cyanamid. And pretty soon, the company was making airplane parts, uh, panels for ships, domes to protect radar equipment. These were all being made from this new material. And after the war, glass-reinforced plastic, which is actually a better term, found its way into fishing poles, pleasure boats, and in 1953, the body of Chevrolet's Corvette, the first car that was made of what was called fiberglass, but really uh, should have been called made of uh, glass-reinforced plastic. Anyway, when Alan Shepard, America's first astronaut, was launched into space in 1961, he was sitting in a fiberglass seat custom molded to his body. And his mercury capsule uh, had a, a heat shield to protect uh, it on re-entry. And that was made of uh, aluminum uh, uh, and uh, many layers of fiberglass. 
the Apollo capsule that would take astronauts to the moon, as well as the lunar lander, were both insulated with uh, fiberglass. Well, of course, the journey to the moon required extensive testing of the Apollo castle on the ground before the first low Earth orbital test that was planned for 1967. Tragically, that launch never took place because astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were killed in a fire that engulfed the capsule during a ground test. It had been designed to be 100% oxygen. Why? Because it would save weight. Now, oxygen does support combustion. It, of course, itself doesn't burn, but it supports combustion. Electrical spark triggered a flash fire that was fed by lots of combustible materials in the capsule, especially Velcro. Anyway, the astronauts had been wearing fireproof suits that were made of DuPont's Nomex, but it could not stand up to the intensity of the flames. NASA obviously launched a full-scale investigation into the tragedy and tasked companies to come up with a superior material for the spacesuits. And the Owens Corning Company came up with beta cloth made of tightly woven, extremely thin glass fibers coated with Teflon that was totally non-flammable. It had a higher melting point than Nomex, and the tight weave prevented penetration by gases or microscopic particles. It was ideal for the outer layer of the Apollo spacesuit. Walter Byrd, an engineer who in the 1940s had worked on designing coverings for radar installations, saw the potential of beta cloth in earthly applications. In 1975, his company, Bird Air, installed a roof made of panels of Teflon-coated fiberglass on Detroit's Pontiac Silverdome. This then forayed into similar installations around the world, including the Sayop Vancouver's Canada Place, the uh, roof of the Dallas Cowboy Stadium, and of course the roof of Montreal's Olympic Stadium. Now, our original roof here, built for the 76 Olympics, was made of Kevlar. That's DuPont's famous bulletproof material. And it was designed to be retractable. Unfortunately, it did not stand up well to the rigors of opening and closing. And in 1998, it had to be replaced. It was replaced by a non-retractable roof constructed of panels of bird air's fiberglass. So although that fabric stood up to the demands of outer space, it could not deal with our snowfall. And the weight of snow that piled up on the roof of the Olympic Stadium caused numerous tears. And now looking for a contractor to design a new roof. Well, given that chemists and engineers were able to solve the monumental problems involved in putting men on the moon, one would think they should be able to put a roof on our Olympic Stadium. Then, of course... The task will be to find a team to play under it. All right, we'll once again check traffic and then be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just We have uh, Ivana on the line. Ivana? Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Hi. Yes, I'm calling in regards to uh, the Abraham Lincoln's mom question. Okay. 
I'm going to give it my shot. I was speaking to my 95-year-old mother-in-law, and she said she think it's this. So basically, she was saying it's from, she died from the cow's milk, the, the cow that ate um, white snake root. Yes, this is exactly right. It's a very interesting story, of course. Oh, well, anything okay. with Abraham Lincoln would be. And there's a plant known as white snake root, as you suggested, and it contains a toxin. It's called tremetol. Okay. And uh, cows, uh, of course, it, and they can pass this toxin on in their milk. And, and medical science did not really know about uh, what uh, you know this was due to until 1928, when uh, okay. advances in biochemistry, uh, advances in biochemistry enabled the analysis of the of the toxin. Now, there's a very interesting uh, historical story about uh, a doctor by the name of Anna Pierce, who was uh, way back in the 19th century, born in 1808, and credited uh, with discovering this connection. And the story is that while following uh, the cattle in search of, of the cause of this, she happened upon an elder, elderly Shawnee woman whom she befriended. And during the conversations, the Shawnee told her that the white snake root plant caused milk sickness in humans. And then Dr. Hobbs tested this by feeding the plant to a calf and indeed observed its poisonous properties. And that's how we learned uh, about this. Today, of course, uh, uh, this is no uh, cows are not out in, in uh, random fields uh, eating snake root. And also because the milk from many, many cows, of course, is blended together. So even if there were some remnants of this, it would be so dilute that it would not affect anyone. But it certainly did affect Abraham Lincoln's mother, who died of milk sickness. All right, so thanks for answering uh, that uh, question. You're welcome. So uh, I'm really proud of my 95-year-old mother-in-law, I mean, (laughs) for, for, for remembering that, you know? Okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let me tell you about the man in the white suit. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, often regarded as a lesson about the consequences of pursuing science without giving careful thought to possible consequences. The 1951 film Man in the White Suit has a similar theme. In an era where novel materials such as nylon and polyester were often in the news, the plot revolves around a chemist, Guinness, who is convinced he has discovered a way to make a super-strong synthetic fiber that never wears out and never gets dirty. Well, wouldn't we love to have that? Secretly toiling away in a lab, he manages to make a white suit with the desired properties. That was science fiction. But the challenge of producing stain-resistant materials is very real. Chemists taking a clue from peaches have actually come up with such a material. The surface of a peach is covered with moss. We call that fuzz. And these fibers prevent water droplets from contacting the skin of the peach. Moisture on the skin is uh, conducive to the growth of mold. And taking a lesson from the peach, chemists have formulated a material, they call it nanotex, that can coat fabrics with tiny whiskers of synthetic polymers that adhere very strongly to the fabric and they prevent contact with water. As the water droplets roll off, 
they take dirt with them. In the man in the white suit, both companies and workers are unaccepting of the new Factories do not want suits that last forever, and workers are afraid of losing their jobs. In real life, there has also been opposition to nanotechs by people who believe that nanotechnology presents all sorts of dangers. The film's white suit turns out to have a fatal flaw. The material, when exposed to the air, begins to disintegrate after a few days. The science and its consequences have not been carefully thought through. Many activists today feel same way about some aspects of current scientific research, although, of course, no problems with nanotechs have been noted. But we can learn a lot from, uh, from films. And uh, I, uh, I'm always on the lookout for movies that have an interesting scientific connection. And um, tomorrow, actually, uh, it being the first Monday of May, it is my time for the uh, public lecture through the Cote St. Luke Public Library, the Eleanor London Public Library that I've been doing now for, I think, over 35 years. And uh, the topic tomorrow is uh, uh, medicine in the movies. And I'm going to take a look at uh, some of the fascinating movies that are uh, out there, uh, new ones and old ones that have uh, some kind of scientific connection, mostly through uh, medicine. And uh, I think uh, it is a very interesting way to learn some science. Uh, it's a painless way uh, because generally people like movies. And, uh, uh, you know, many people don't like to specifically read or study science. But when it is done in, in a context of entertainment, uh, they will quite happily. Uh, this, of course, is free. Uh, we're still doing this um, uh, online. Uh, I think we will get back to doing it in person soon. But anyway, you can check out, uh, just Google Eleanor London Public Library, and you'll be able to uh, connect and uh, uh, hear about uh, movies that have scientific connections. And also, let me just uh, remind you once more about this uh, event on uh, Tuesday night at McGill because uh, I think this, this you know, is, I would say it's a once in a lifetime possibility when you get to listen to five astronauts at the same time. And these are all people who have been up in space, some of them several times, and uh, obviously have all kinds of stories to tell. So uh, it certainly going to be thrilling for me to host this this uh, event with the uh, astronauts because uh, I have a lot of questions to to ask. I've been following the space program for uh, many, many. I think it's one of uh, uh, the most fascinating uh, scientific developments that that you know we have experienced in our lifetime. I mean the uh, the challenge of going to the moon. Uh, oh, phenomenal that it was met. Uh, and really, the the more you read about it, uh, about how complicated that business is and how many things had to go right in order to make that happen, uh, it, it's just fantastic that we have the human ingenuity that uh, allowed to, to make all those calculations and uh, bring it all bring it all off. 
you know, it's it's really phenomenal uh, that um, that has been uh, done. And uh, of course, we look forward to to uh, to the future. Mars, I think that that is going to happen. It's not going to happen in in the near future because it is really a very very challenging problem. But uh, it it can be managed. Uh, certainly, uh, I think within this century. Uh, I don't think it's going to be within the next uh, few years. But uh, uh, I would bet on it being this century. Although, of course, won't be around to to see it. Uh, okay, so that's um, that's the invitation. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, well worthwhile. Check it out. Just Google uh, McGill Space Week, and you'll get the uh, all of the information. All right. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, our time has once again run out, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>